Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 23 and 24, from Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court. And now, chapter 23, Restoration of the Fountain. Saturday noon, I went to the well and looked on a while. Merlin was still burning smoke powders and pawing the air and muttering gibberish as hard as ever, but looking pretty downhearted, for of course he had not started even a perspiration in that well yet. Finally I said, How does the thing promise by this time, partner? Behold, I am even now busied with trial of the powerfulest enchantment known to the princes of the occult arts in the lands of the East. And it veil me, not could avail. Peace, until I finish. He raised a smoke this time that darkened all the region, and must have made matters uncomfortable for the hermits for the wind was their way, and it rolled down over their dens in a dense and billowy fog. He poured out volumes of speech to match, and contorted his body and sawed the air with his hands in a most extraordinary way. At the end of twenty minutes he dropped down panting, and about exhausted. Now arrived the abbot and several hundred monks and nuns, and behind them a multitude of pilgrims and a couple of acres of foundlings, all drawn by the prodigious smoke, and all in a grand state of excitement. The abbot inquired anxiously for results. Merlin said, If any labor of mortal might break the spell that binds these waters, this which I have but just essayed has done it. It has failed. Whereby I do now know that that which I had feared is a truth established. The sign of this failure is that the most potent name known to the magicians of the East, and whose name none may utter and live, has laid his spell upon this well. The mortal does not breathe, nor ever will, who can penetrate the secret of that spell, and without that secret none can break it. The water will flow no more forever, good father. I've done what man could. If anyone thinks they can just wave a wand and fix all this, they're crazy. Suffer me to go. Of course this threw the abbot into a good deal of consternation. He turned to me with the signs of it in his face and said, "'Ye have heard him. Is it true?' "'Part of it is.' "'Not all, then. Not all. What part is true?' 
"'that that spirit with the Russian name "'has put a spell upon the well.' "'God's wounds! "'Then are we ruined?' "'Possibly. "'But not certainly. "'You mean, not certainly?' "'That is it. "'Wherefore, ye also mean "'that when he saith none can break the spell, "'yes, when he says that, "'he says what isn't necessarily true.' "'there are conditions under which an effort to break it "'may have some chance, that is, some small, "'some trifling chance of success. "'The conditions? "'Oh, they're nothing difficult, only these. "'I want the well and the surroundings for the space of half a mile, "'entirely to myself, from sunset today until I remove the ban, "'and nobody allowed to cross the ground but by my authority. "'Are these all? "'Yes.' "'And you have no fear to try?' "'No, none. "'One may fail, of course, and one may also succeed. "'One can try, and I'm ready to chance it. "'I have my conditions?' "'Yes, these and all others you may name. "'I will issue a commandment to that effect.' "'Wait,' said Merlin, with an evil smile. "'Ye wit that he would break the spell "'must know that spirit's name?' "'Yes, I know his name.' "'And wit you also that to know its skills not of itself, "'but ye must likewise pronounce it? "'Ha-ha! Know ye that?' "'Yes, I knew that too.' "'You had that knowledge? Art a fool? "'Are ye minded to utter that name and die?' "'Utter it? Why, certainly. I would utter it if it was Welsh.' "'Ye are even a dead man, then, and I go to tell Arthur.' "'That's all right. Take your gripsack and get going. "'The thing for you to do is to go home and work the weather, John W. Merlin.' "'It was a home shot, and it made him wince, "'for he was the worst weather failure in the kingdom. "'Whenever he ordered up the danger signals along the coast, "'there was a week's dead calm, sure, "'and every time he prophesied fair weather, it rained brickbats. "'But I kept him in the weather bureau right along "'to undermine his reputation.' However, that shot raised his bile, and instead of starting home to report my death, he said he would remain and enjoy it. My two experts arrived in the evening, and pretty well fagged, for they had traveled double tides. They had packed mules along, and had brought everything I needed. Tools, pump, lead pipe, Greek fire, sheaves of big rockets, Roman candles, colored fire sprays, electric apparatus, and a lot of sundries. They got their supper and a nap, and about midnight we sallied out through a solitude so wholly vacant and complete that it quite overpassed the required conditions. We took possession of the well and its surroundings. My boys were experts in all sorts of things, from the stoning up of a well to the constructing of a mathematical instrument. An hour before sunrise we had the leak mended in shipshape fashion, and the water began to rise. Then we stowed our fireworks in the chapel, locked up the place, and went home to bed. Before the noon mass was over, we were at the well again, for there was a deal to do yet, and I was determined to spring the miracle before midnight, for business reasons. For whereas a miracle worked for the church on a weekday is worth a good deal, it is worth six times as much if you get it in on a Sunday. In nine hours the water had risen to its customary level. That is to say, it was within twenty-three feet of the top. We put in a little iron pump, one of the first turned out by my works near the capital. 
we bored into a stone reservoir which stood against the outer wall of the well chamber and inserted a section of lead pipe that was long enough to reach to the door of the chapel and project beyond the threshold, where the gushing water would be visible to the 250 acres of people I was intending should be present on the flat plain in front of this little holy hillock at the proper time. We knocked the head out of an empty hogshead and hoisted this hogshead to the flat roof of the chapel, where we clamped it down fast, poured in gunpowder till it lay loosely an inch deep on the bottom. Then we stood up rockets in the hogshead as thick as they could loosely stand. All the different breeds of rockets there are. And they made a portly and imposing sheaf, I can tell you. We grounded the wire of a pocket electrical battery in that powder. We placed a whole magazine of Greek fire on each corner of the roof. Blue on one corner, green on another, red on another, and purple on the last, and grounded a wire in each. About two hundred yards off, in the flat, we built a pen of scantlings, about four feet high, and laid planks on it, and so made a platform. We covered it with swell tapestries borrowed for the occasion, and topped it off with the abbot's own throne. When you are going to do a miracle for an ignorant race, you want to get in every detail that will count. You want to make all the properties impressive to the public eye. You want to make matters comfortable for your head guest. Then you can turn yourself loose and play your effects for all they're worth. I know the value of these things, for I know human nature. You can't throw too much style into a miracle. It costs trouble and work and sometimes money, but it pays in the end. Well, we brought the wires to the ground at the chapel and then brought them under the ground to the platform and hid the batteries there. We put a rope fence a hundred feet square around the platform to keep off the common multitude. And that finished the work. My idea was... Doors open at 10.30. Performance to begin at 11.25 sharp. I wished I could charge admission, but of course that wouldn't answer. I instructed my boys to be in the chapel as early as 10, before anybody was around, and be ready to man the pumps at the proper time, and make the fur fly. Then we went home to supper. The news of the disaster to the well had traveled far by this time, and now for two or three days a steady avalanche of people had been pouring into the valley. The lower end of the valley was become one huge camp. We should have a good house, no question about that. Criers went the rounds early in the evening and announced the coming attempt, which put every pulse up to fever heat. They gave notice that the abbot and his official suite would move in state and occupy the platform at 10.30, up to which time all the region which was under my ban must be clear. The bells would then cease from tolling, and this sign should be permission to the multitudes to close in and take their places. I was at the platform and all ready to do the honors when the abbot's solemn procession hove in sight, which it did not do till it was nearly to the rope fence, because it was a starless, black night and no torches permitted. With it came Merlin, and took a front seat on the platform. He was as good as his word for once. One could not see the multitudes banked together beyond the ban, but they were there, just the same. The moment the bells stopped, those banked masses broke and poured over the line like a vast black wave, and for as much as a half hour it continued to flow, and then it solidified itself, and you could have walked upon a pavement of human heads two, well, miles. We had a solemn stage wait now for about twenty minutes, a thing I had counted on for effect. It is always good to let your audience have a chance to work up its expectancy. At length, 
Out of the silence, a noble Latin chant, men's voices, broke and swelled up and rolled away into the night, a majestic tide of melody. I had arranged that, too, and it was one of the best effects I'd ever invented. When it was finished, I stood up on the platform and extended my hands abroad, for two minutes, with my face uplifted. That always produces a dead hush. And then slowly pronounced this ghastly word with a kind of awfulness which caused hundreds to tremble, and many women to faint. Constantopolitan is Cher du del Saxpiefen, Masher's Gieselschaft. Just as I was moaning out the closing hunks of that word, I touched off one of my electric connections, and all that murky world of people stood revealed in a hideous blue glare. It was immense, that effect. Lots of people shrieked. Women curled up and quit in every direction. Foundlings collapsed by platoons. The abbot and the monks crossed themselves nimbly and their lips fluttered with agitated prayers. Merlin held his grip, but he was astonished clear down to his corns. He had never seen anything to begin with that before. Now was the time to pile in the effects. I lifted my hands and groaned up this word, as it were in agony. Nihil stentinamith, eater catch in spring, ungesatten tes verschungen, ungstatente est versetschungen and turned on the red fire. You should have heard that Atlantic of people moan and howl when that crimson hell joined the blue. After sixty seconds I shouted, Transveiled troopin' tropin' transport trampeltier, triber trunkung thrainin tragodi, and lit up the green fire. After waiting only forty seconds this time, I spread my arms abroad and thundered out the devastating syllables of this word of words. Mecca musel manamassen, chen mordern morin mutter marmonin numerenti macher, and whirled on the purple glare. There they were, all going at once red, blue, green, purple. Four furious volcanoes pouring vast clouds of radiant smoke aloft, and spreading a blinding rainbowed noonday to the furthest confines of that valley. In the distance, one could see that fellow on the pillar standing rigid against the background of sky. His seesaw stopped for the first time in twenty years. I knew the boys were at the pump now and ready, so I said to the abbot, The time has come, father. I'm about to pronounce the dread name and command the spell to dissolve. You're going to want to brace up and take hold of something. Then I shouted to the people, Behold, in another minute the spell will be broken, and no mortal can break it. If it break, all will know it, for you will see the sacred water gush from the chapel door. I stood a few moments to let the hearers have a chance to spread my announcement to those who couldn't hear, and so convey it to the furthest ranks. Then I made a grand exhibition of extra posturing and gesturing, and shouted, Lo! I command the fell spirit that possesses the holy fountain to now disgorge into the skies all the infernal fires that still remain in him, and straightway dissolve his spell, and flee hence to the pit, there to lie bound a thousand years. By his own dread name, I command it. Bwillink! Then I touched off the hogshead of rockets, and a vast fountain of dazzling lances of fire vomited itself toward the zenith with a hissing rush and burst in mid-sky into a storm of flashing jewels. One mighty groan of terror started up from the massed people, then suddenly broke into a wild hosanna of joy, for there, fair and plain in the uncanny glare, they saw the freed water leaping forth. The old abbot could not speak a word, 
for tears and the chokings in his throat. Without utterance of any sort, he folded me in his arms and mashed me. It was more eloquent than speech, and harder to get over, too, in a country where there were really no doctors that were worth a damaged nickel. You should have seen those acres of people throw themselves down in that water and kiss it, kiss it, and pet it, and fondle it, and talk to it as if it were alive, and welcome it back with the dear names they gave their darlings, just as if it had been a friend who had long gone away and lost, and was come home again. Yes, it was pretty to see. It made me think more of them than I had done before. I sent Merlin home on a shutter. He had caved in and gone down like a landslide when I pronounced that fearful name, and had never come to since. He had never heard that name before. Neither had I. But to him it was the right one. Any jumble would have been the right one. He admitted afterward that that spirit's own mother could not have pronounced that name better than I did. He never could understand how I survived it. And I didn't tell him. It is only young magicians that give away a secret like that. Merlin spent three months working enchantments to try to find out how the deep trick of how to pronounce that name and outlive it, but he didn't arrive. When I started to the chapel, the populace uncovered and fell back reverently to make a wide way for me, as if I'd been some kind of superior being. And I was. I was aware of that. I took along a night shift of monks and taught them the mystery of the pomp and set them to work, for it was plain that a good part of the people out there were going to sit up with the water all night. Consequently, it was right that they should have all they wanted of it. To those monks, that pump was a good deal of a miracle itself, and they were full of wonder over it, and of admiration, too, of the exceeding effectiveness of its performance. It was a great night, an immense night. There was reputation in it. I could hardly get to sleep for glowering over it. We'll return with Chapter 24, right after these sponsor messages. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now chapter 24 of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 24, A Rival Magician. My influence in the Valley of Holiness was something prodigious now. It seemed worthwhile to try to turn it to some valuable account. 
the thought came to me the next morning, and was suggested by my seeing one of my knights who was in the soap line come riding in. According to history, the monks of this place two centuries before had been worldly-minded enough to want to wash. It might be that there was a leaven of this unrighteousness still remaining. So I sounded a brother. "'Wouldn't you like a bath?' He shuddered at the thought, the thought of the peril of it to the well. But he said with feeling, "'One deeds not to ask that of a poor body who has not known that blessed refreshment since he was a boy. Would God I might wash me. But it may not be fair, sir. Tempt me not. It is forbidden.' And then he sighed in such a sorrowful way that I was resolved he should have at least one layer of his real estate removed, "'if it sized up my whole influence and bankrupted the pile. "'So I went to the abbot and asked for a permit for this brother. "'He blenched at the idea. "'I don't mean that you could see him blench, "'for of course you couldn't see it without you scraped him, "'and I didn't care enough about it to scrape him. "'But I knew the blench was there, just the same, "'and within a book cover's thickness of the surface, too. "'Blenched and trembled. "'He said, "'Ah, son,' "'Ask aught else thou will, and it is thine, "'and freely granted out of a grateful heart. "'But this, oh, this, "'would you drive away the blessed water again?' "'No, father, I will not drive it away. "'I have mysterious knowledge which teaches me "'that there was an error that other time "'when it was thought the institution of the bath "'banished the fountain.' "'A large interest began to show up in the old man's face.' "'My knowledge informs me, sir, that the bath was innocent of that misfortune, "'which was caused by quite another sort of sin.' "'These are brave words, but—but right welcome, if they be true.' "'They are true, indeed. Let me build the bath again, father. "'Let me build it again, and the fountain shall flow forever.' "'You promise this? You promise it? Say the word. Say, you promise it. I do promise it. Then will I have the first bath myself. Go, get ye to your work. Tarry not, tarry not, but go. I and my boys were at work straight off. The ruins of the old bath were there yet in the basement of the monastery, not a stone missing. They had been left just so, all these lifetimes, and avoided with a pious fear, as things accursed. In two days we had it all done and the water in. "'a spacious pool of clear, pure water "'that a body could swim in. "'It was running water, too. "'It came in and went out through the ancient pipes. "'The old abbot kept his word "'and was the first to try it. "'He went down black and shaky, "'leaving the whole black community above "'troubled and worried and full of bodings. "'But he came back, white and joyful, "'and the game was made. "'Another triumph scored. "'It was a good campaign that we made "'in that valley of holiness.' "'and I was very well satisfied "'and ready to move on now. "'But I struck a disappointment. "'I caught a heavy cold, "'and it started up an old lurking rheumatism of mine. "'Of course the rheumatism hunted up my weakest place "'and located itself there. "'This was the place where the abbot put his arms about me "'and mashed me, "'what time he was moved to testify his gratitude to me with an embrace. "'When at last I got out, I was a shadow.' "'but everybody was full of attentions and kindnesses, "'and these brought cheer back into my life, "'and were the right medicine to help a convalescent "'swiftly up toward health and strength again. "'So I gained fast. "'Sandy was worn out with nursing, "'so I made up my mind to turn out and go a cruise alone, "'leaving her at the nunnery to rest up. 
"'My idea was to disguise myself as a freeman of peasant degree "'and wander through the country a week or two on foot. "'This would give me a chance to eat and lodge "'with the lowliest and poorest class of free citizens on equal terms. "'There was no other way to inform myself perfectly of their everyday life "'and the operation of the laws upon it. "'If I went among them as a gentleman, "'there would be restraints and conventionalities "'which would shut me out from their private joys and troubles, "'and I should get no further than the outside shell.' One morning I was out on a long walk to get up muscle for my trip, and had climbed the ridge which bordered the northern extremity of the valley, when I came upon an artificial opening in the face of a low precipice, and recognized it by its location as a hermitage, which had often been pointed out to me from a distance as the den of a hermit of high renown for dirt and austerity. I knew he had lately been offered a situation in the Great Sahara, where lions and sandflies made the hermit life peculiarly attractive and difficult, and had gone to Africa to take possession. So I thought I would look in and see how the atmosphere of this den agreed with its reputation. My surprise was great. The place was newly swept and scoured. Then there was another surprise. Back in the gloom of the cavern, I heard the clink of a little bell, and then this exclamation. "'Hello, Central! Is this you, Camelot? Behold!' Thou mayst glad thy heart, and thou hast faith to believe the wonderful, when that it cometh in unexpected guise, and maketh itself manifest in impossible places. Here standeth in the flesh his mightiness, the boss, and with thine own ears shall ye hear him speak. Now what a radical reversal of things this was! What a jumbling together of extravagant incongruities! What a fantastic conjunction of opposites and irreconcilables! The home of the bogus miracle become the home of a real one, the den of a medieval hermit turned into a telephone office. The telephone clerk stepped into the light, and I recognized one of my young fellows. I said, "'How long has this office been established here, Ulfius?' "'But since midnight, fair Sir Boss, and it please you. We saw many lights in the valley, and so judged it well to make a station, for that were so many lights be needs must they indicate a town of goodly size.' "'Quite right. It isn't a town in the customary sense,' "'but it's a good stand, anyway. "'Do you know where you are?' "'Of that I've had no time to make inquiry, "'for when as my comradeship moved hence upon their labors, "'leaving me in charge, I got me to needed rest, "'proposing to inquire when I waked "'and report the place's name to Camelot for record. "'Well, this is the Valley of Holiness. "'It didn't take. I mean, he didn't start at the name, "'as I'd supposed he would. "'He merely said, "'I will so report it. "'Why, the surrounding regions are filled with the noise of late wonders that have happened here. "'You didn't hear of them? "'Ah, ye will remember we move by night and avoid speech with all. "'We learn naught but that we get by telephone from Camelot. "'Why, they know about all this thing. "'Haven't they told you anything about the great miracle of the restoration of a holy fountain?' "'Oh, that? Indeed, yes. "'But the name of this valley doth woundily differ from the name of that one.' Indeed, to differ wider, we're not pot. What was that name, then? The Valley of Hellishness. That explains it. Confound a telephone, anyway. It's the very demon for conveying similarities of sound that are miracles of divergence from similarity of sense. But no matter. You know the name of the place now. Call up Camelot. This is the Valley of Holiness. He did it, and had Clarence sent for. It was good to hear my boy's voice again. It was like being home. After some affectionate interchanges and some account of my late illness, I said, So what's new, Clarence? 
"'The king and queen and many of the court "'do start even in this hour "'to go to your valley to pay pious homage "'to the waters ye have restored "'and cleanse themselves of sin,' he said. "'And see the place where the infernal spirit "'sprouted true hell-flames to the clouds. "'And ye listen sharply, "'may ye hear me wink and hear me likewise smile a smile, "'since it was I that made that selection "'of those flames from out of our stock "'and sent them by your order. "'Good job, Clarence. "'Does the king know the way to this place?' "'The king? No.' "'nor to any other in his realms, may, mayhap, "'but the lads that help you with your miracle "'will be his guide and lead the way, "'and appoint the places for rest at noon "'and sleeps at night. "'This will bring him here? When? "'I'd say mid-afternoon or later, the third day. "'Anything else in the way of news? "'Yes, the king hath begun the raising "'of the standing army you suggested to him. "'One regiment is complete and officered. "'The mischief! "'I wanted a main hand in that myself.' "'There's only one body of men in the kingdom "'that are fitted to officer a regular army.' "'Yes, and now you will marvel to know "'there's not so much as one West Pointer in that regiment. "'What are you talking about? "'Are you in earnest?' "'It's truly as I have said.' "'Well, this makes me uneasy. "'Who were chosen, and what was the method? "'Competitive examination?' "'Indeed, I know not of the method, but I know this. "'These officers be all of noble family, and are born... "'Um, what is it you call it? "'Chuckleheads.' "'There's something wrong here, Clarence. "'Comfort yourself, then, "'for two candidates for a lieutenancy "'do travel hence with the king, "'young nobles both, "'and if you but wait where you are, "'you'll hear them questioned. "'That is news to the purpose. "'I will get one West Pointer in anyway. "'Mount a man and send him to that school "'with a message. "'Let him kill horses if necessary, "'but he must be there before sunset tonight, "'and say... "'There's no need. "'I've laid a ground-wire to the school. "'Prithee, let me connect you with it.' "'Boy, that sounded good. "'In this atmosphere of telephones "'and lightning communication with distant regions, "'I was breathing the breath of life again "'after long suffocation. "'I realized then what a creepy, dull, "'inanimate horror this land had been to me "'all these years, "'and how I had been in such a stifled condition of mind "'as to have grown used to it "'almost beyond the power to notice it. "'I gave my order to the superintendent "'of the academy personally.' I also asked him to bring me some paper and a fountain pen and a box or so of safety matches. I was getting tired of doing without these conveniences. I could have them now, as I wasn't going to wear armor any more at present, and therefore could get at my pockets. When I got back to the monastery, I found a thing of interest going on. The abbot and his monks were assembled in the great hall, observing with childish wonder and faith the performances of a new magician, a fresh arrival. His dress was the extreme of the fantastic, as showy and foolish as the sort of thing an Indian medicine man wears. He was mowing and mumbling and gesticulating and drawing mystical figures in the air and on the floor. The regular thing, you know. He was a celebrity from Asia, or so he said, and that was enough. That sort of evidence was as good as gold, and passed current anywhere. How easy and cheap it was to be a great magician on this fellow's terms! His specialty was to tell you what any individual on the face of the globe was doing at the moment, and what he had done at any time in the past, and what he would do at any time in the future. He asked if any would like to know what the Emperor of the East was doing now. The sparkling eyes and the delighted rubbing of hands made eloquent answer. This reverent crowd would like to know what that monarch was at, just at this moment. The fraud went through some more mummery, and then he made grave announcement. The high and mighty emperor of the East 
doth at this moment put money in the palm of a holy begging friar. One, two, three pieces, and they be all of silver. A buzz of admiring exclamations broke out all around. It's marvelous, wonderful, what study, what labor, to have acquired a so amazing power as this. Would they like to know what the Supreme Lord of Indy was doing? Yes. He told them what the Supreme Lord of Indy was doing. Then he told them what the Sultan of Egypt was doing, and also what the King of the Remote Seas was about. And so on and so on. And with each new marvel, the astonishment at his accuracy rose higher and higher. They thought he must surely strike an uncertain place sometime. But no, he never had to hesitate. He always knew, and always with unerring precision. I saw that if this thing went on, I should lose my supremacy. This fellow would capture my following. I should be left out in the cold. I must put a cog in his wheel, and do it right away, too. I said, If I may ask, I should very greatly like to know what a certain person is doing. Speak, and freely. I will tell you. It will be difficult, perhaps impossible. My art knoweth not that word. The more difficult it is, the more certainly will I reveal it to you. You see, I was working up the interest. It was getting pretty high, too. You could see that by the craning of necks all around and the half-suspended breathing. So now I climaxed it. If you make no mistake, if you tell me truly what I want to know, I will give you two hundred silver pennies. The fortune is mine. I will tell you what you would know. Then tell me what I'm doing with my right hand. Ah! came from the crowd. There was a general gasp of surprise. It had not occurred to anybody in the crowd, that simple trick of inquiring about somebody who wasn't ten thousand miles away. The magician was hit hard. It was an emergency that had never happened in his experience before. And it corked him. He didn't know how to meet it. He looked stunned, confused. He couldn't say a word. Come, I said. What are you waiting for? Is it possible you could answer up right off and tell what anybody on the other side of the earth is doing and yet can't tell what a person is doing who isn't three yards away from you? Persons behind me know what I'm doing with my right hand. They will endorse you if you tell correctly. He was still dumb. Very well. I'll tell you why you don't speak up and tell. It's because you don't know. You, a magician? Good friends, this tramp is a mere fraud and liar. This distressed the monks and terrified them. They were not used to hearing these awful beings called names, and they did not know what might be the consequence. There was a dead silence now. Superstitious bodings were in every mind. The magician began to pull his wits together, and when he presently smiled an easy, nonchalant smile, it spread a mighty relief around, for it indicated that his mood was not destructive. He said, It hath struck me speechless, this frivolity of this person's speech. Let all know, if perchance there be any who know it not, that enchanters of my degree deign not to concern themselves with the doings of any but kings, princes, emperors, them that be born in the purple, and them only. Had ye asked me what Arthur the great king is doing, it were another matter, and I had told ye, but the doings of a subject interest me not. Oh, then I guess I misunderstood you. I thought you said anybody, and so I supposed anybody included. Well, anybody, that is, everybody. 
Oh, it doth. Anybody that is of lofty birth, and the better if he be royal. That, it meseemeth, might well be, said the abbot, who saw his opportunity to smooth things and avert disaster. For it were not likely that so wonderful a gift as this would be conferred for the revelation of the concerns of lesser beings than such as be born near to the summits of greatness. Our Arthur the king, would you know of him? broke in the enchanter. Most gladly, yea, and gratefully. Everybody was full of awe and interest again right away, the incorrigible idiots. They watched the incantations absorbingly, and looked at me with a, There, now what can you say to that, air, when the announcement came? The king is weary with the chase, and lieth in his palace these two hours, sleeping a dreamless sleep. God's benison upon him, said the abbot, and crossed himself. May that sleep be to the refreshment of his body and his soul. And so it might be, if he were sleeping, I said. But the king is not sleeping. The king rides. Here was trouble again, a conflict of authority. Nobody knew which of us to believe. I still had some reputation left. The magician's scorn was stirred, and he said, Lo, I've seen many wonderful soothsayers and prophets and magicians in my life days, but none before that could sit idle and see to the heart of things with never an incantation to help. Well, you've lived in the woods and lost much by it. I use incantations myself, as this good brotherhood are aware, but only on occasions of moment. When it comes to sarcasming, I reckon I know how to keep my end up. That jab made this fellow squirm. The abbot inquired after the queen and the court, and got this information. They be all on sleep, being overcome by fatigue, like as to the king. I said, That's merely another lie. Half of them are about their amusements. The queen and the other half are not sleeping. They ride. Now perhaps you can spread yourself a little, and tell us where the king and queen and, and all that are this moment riding with them are going. They sleep now, as I said, but on the morrow they will ride, for they go a journey toward the sea. And where will they be the day after tomorrow at Vespers? Far to the north of Camelot, and half their journey will be done. That is another lie, by the space of a hundred and fifty miles. Their journey will not merely be half done, it will be all done, and they will be here, in this valley. That was a noble shot. It set the abbot and the monks in a whirl of excitement, and it rocked the enchanter to his base. I followed the thing right up. If the king does not arrive, I will have myself ridden on a rail. If he does, I will ride you on a rail instead. Next day I went up to the telephone office and found that the king had passed through two towns that were on the line. I spotted his progress on the succeeding day in the same way. I kept these matters to myself. The third day's reports showed that if he kept up his gait, he would arrive by four in the afternoon. There was still no sign anywhere of interest in his coming. There seemed to be no preparations making to receive him in state. A strange thing, truly. Only one thing could explain this. That other magician had been cutting under me, sure. This was true. I asked a friend of mine, a monk, about it, and he said, yes, the magician had tried some further enchantments and found out that the court had concluded to make no journey at all, but stay at home. Think of that. Observe how much a reputation was worth in such a country. These people had seen me do the very showiest bit of magic in history, and the only one within their memory that had a positive value. And yet here they were, 
ready to take up with an adventurer who could offer no evidence of his powers but his mere unproven word. However, it was not good politics to let the king come without any fuss and feathers at all, so I went down and drummed up a procession of pilgrims and smoked out a batch of hermits and started them out at two o'clock to meet him. And that was the sort of state he arrived in. The abbot was helpless with rage and humiliation when I brought him out on a balcony and showed him the head of state marching in and never a monk on hand to offer him welcome, and no stir of life or clang of joy bell to glad his spirit. He took one look and then flew to rouse out his forces. The next minute the bells were dinning furiously, and the various buildings were vomiting monks and nuns who went swarming in a rush toward the coming procession, and with them went that magician, and he was on a rail, too, by the abbot's order, and his reputation was in the mud, and mine was in the sky again. Yes, a man can keep his trademarks current in such a country, but he can't sit around and do it. He's got to be on deck and attending to business all along. Thanks for joining us for these two chapters of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. We'll return next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're enjoying our story, if you enjoy this show, please do take a moment, you Apple listeners, and send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate that very much, and it helps new listeners get a start with us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.